The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff. I'm the host of the podcast here at the seminary. I'm also director of advancement and admissions and a graduating senior. And I have with me (laughs) in the studio, Dr. Joseph A. Pipa, president emeritus of the school and professor of systematic and homiletical theology. Dr. Pipa, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Zach. It's always good to do this. After something of a hiatus, uh, for which we have no legitimate excuse, we are back in the studio for our regular faith and practice segment where we take your questions, dear listeners, and put them before Dr. Piper, and he answers them. And before we dive into these, I do want to ask Dr. Piper to open our time together with a word of prayer. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bless and adore you, for you indeed are God, there is none other, great and glorious. We thank you that you have revealed to us in your word all that we need to know concerning what we're to believe and how we're to live. We thank you for the spirit who illumines our understanding that we might uh, continually delve more deeply into your word and develop in knowledge and wisdom. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege today to talk about some very important issues uh, in the church, in our lives, and we ask that your spirit will indeed Uh, Work in us and through us in this time. We pray you'll forgive us of our sins. For Christ's sake, amen. Amen. Our first question comes from longtime listener and repeat questioner, Chad Warner of Simpsonville, South Carolina. He asks, should we recycle as a way of stewarding the creation? If so, to what extent should we go to recycle? And he gives some examples such as paying fees, driving to a recycling facility, etc. Thank you, Chad. At least this question is not recycled. Yours are always new. It's a good question. I think it's very important. I think, yes, as uh, as stewards of the creation who serve as God's uh, vice regents in the creation, we are responsible uh, to uh, use the creation for God's glory and our good, uh, but to do so in a way that's respectful. Uh, Schaefer years ago wrote a, a book on um, the Christian's duty to the creation. And it's, it's really useful. Uh, my wife and I, uh, in moderation, uh, will practice uh, recycling. Uh, and I think that it is a good stewardship. I don't think we can make it a faith issue. But um, I believe that it is a, pr- a proper use of, of uh, our disposal of uh, resources that can be uh, uh, reused. Reconstituted, uh, we pay a little extra garbage fee uh, a month uh, for to have a recycling bin, uh, and it's just uh, I think it's good. I would as I said, I wouldn't make it an issue of uh, even of, of conscience. So each person, I wouldn't condemn the person who uh, doesn't do it, but I would strongly advocate in our stewardship of the creation that we uh, try to be prudent, particularly um, avoiding then putting things in landfill that could be uh, put to some other use. You know, I'm a big fan of 
repurposing stuff within the home. And, you know, the most common example of that is using the, the bags I get at the grocery store. Oh, yeah. My groceries yeah, we do to, all of that. To collect trash or whatever. And um, the question of corporate recycling, I guess, or public recycling facilities and processes is, is a bit more of a complex one, Chad, because what I hear from friends of mine who have worked in such uh, plants is that it's it's spotty at best and extremely inefficient. And so already what little impact we may have at 100% efficiency is then brought down uh, to almost negligible amounts. And how much of my time should I really spend basically making no impact at all whatsoever right yeah again driving to recycling bins and stuff um you know we clean out antioch we took stuff over there to the recycling bin but there was a lot of junk and it was a good thing to do with it but yeah we have to think about our time as well they pick it up at my door uh, that's one thing i had to drive 10 mile round trip then i'm Buying gas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you're burnt, you're you're affecting the environment in other ways. And well, is it really balancing I'm not going to go out? that far. You're affecting the environment, but yeah. Well, it's car, it's just hard to balance. Well, I'm saying on the logic of a of a conservationist or whatever. But you know, some people have to drive all their garbage to the centers, and then yeah, yeah to do it that way. Uh, if it's here, right by the grocery stores, you can get rid of paper and uh, glass products and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think it's uh, it's a wise thing to do. Uh, I have a friend in South Africa. And he actually owns a recycling plant, and I think he does well. We have investigated this in economic development in Nigeria because it would do a twofold thing. It would clean up the streets because since you don't have any kind of reliable water, there are water bottles everywhere. Uh, and it could create a, uh, some kind of, of uh, jobs for some of the poor people there in the church. At this point, it's not nothing's happened with it. But in that situation, uh, I think it could could be very good simply because of the amount of plastic that is out there. And but then we have issues with trucking and things like that as well. So it hasn't materialized. The other thing that when we lived at, uh, in the, we lived in the past, we're going to start doing it here, and that was uh, composting, which I, I think is a very wise thing because yeah. with composting, we're creating good soil. I actually built a garden out of Texas gumbo in Texas uh, by composting. And so we, we've been doing it spasmodically, but I want to get a compost bin, put it back behind a berm and on the lot and, and do that, because I think that's a very good use of uh, vegetable products. Wrapping up this question, Dr. Piper recommends Francis Schaefer on creation care and stewardship. Uh, thank you, Chad, for, for your question. Our, our next one is a bit more um, typical of the kinds of questions we get here on the podcast. Did any of the Westminster divines hold to a non-literal view of the creation days? Should presbyteries require men to state non-literal views of the creation days as a difference with the standards? Very good, Anonymous. As best as research has established, no Westminster divine held to anything but a normal day view of creation. They maybe would have not put it in terms, all of them, of 24-hour day, because we don't know what the length of a day was, uh, particularly in the early part of creation and before the flood. But the Hebrew language is quite clear that this was to be considered uh, a normal day. There's an excellent uh, article on that by my co-editor, David Hall, on 
uh, the seminary's book, Did God Create in Six Days? And uh, Dr. Hall has done very thorough research in terms of the Westminster Divines and this issue and has clearly established that uh, any divine that wrote anything else on the matter of creation uh, held to normal day creation. They were greatly shaped by Calvin and Usher. For example, the language space of six days, which moderns have said this was simply an accommodation to biblical language. Well, that is not biblical language. It's not found in the Bible. Language is actually coined by Calvin. Maybe not coined. Maybe somebody else used it before him. But in my experience, it's the first place I have found it. Calvin uh, to go against Augustine's view of instantaneous creation, uh, asserted the fact that God took a space of six days to create. That also came to the Westminster Divines through Usher uh, and his theological writings and catechism. Usher didn't participate in the assembly because he was a royalist, but he was in contact with them and uh, they relied heavily upon his, his works. So the standards clearly in the space of six days are teaching a supernatural fiat creation in a chronological timely order. As to the second part of the question then, should Presbyterians require men to state non-literal views of the creation as differences with the standards? Here in the Presbyterian Church in America, we get into a pretty deep fog with this specious idea of good faith subscription. There's nothing good about it. It's ethically uh, unrighteous, nothing faithful about it because it's splitting the church right and left. Uh, but uh, every person who comes for an examination, if he does not believe in a little view, is required to report that to his presbytery. So that part is required. The presbytery then, each presbytery individually, has the uh, prerogative to decide at what nature uh, of uh, exception this is. And we have, I think, no exception, merely a matter of linguistics. An exception, a serious exception, but does not strike at the vitals, and then an exception that strikes at the vitals. Uh, and Presbyterians have taken different views in that. And so the church is divided by a document that's supposed to be uh, unifying us. In our Presbytery here in Calvary Presbytery, um, we do not allow uh, men uh, to teach uh, any position but the uh, normal day view. For those of you in Presbyteries that uh, have to deal with this, I've developed a system uh, to help the committee as well as the man to deal with the issue. So I've got a, a criteria, a set of criteria that have to be met. And the first is the man has to be able to give a sound exegetical defense of the uh, normal day position. Next, he must be able to give a sound exegetical defense of his own position. If he cannot do those two things, I'm not going to vote for him, even though he could not teach them in our presbytery. Um, and, and mostly that's what we're finding. We, we have these guys come, and this is what their seminary professor said, and they cannot begin to even state it articulately, kind of like the people Tall talk, writes about in First Timothy. Uh, they don't even know what they're saying or how, how uh, the words they're using to say it. 
Uh, and if they can't do those things, then clearly they should not be allowed at that point to be licensed or ordained. So it is a serious issue. Uh, in the OPC, they say they don't have exceptions. I don't know how they do that. Um, when in fact they do have uh, men that hold the non-literal view as as well, but um, the standards are clear, and regardless of the attempts to say that they are not, uh, look at David Hall's article. The standards are quite clear uh, with respect to uh, a normal day creation. Thank you for the question, anonymous. I think that's a, a helpful issue to revisit every now and again because it is perennially relevant in our uh, in our circles in the PCA the OPC and other denominations which we serve our next question comes from Stan Layton of Ellerbee North Carolina when Christ performed miracles did he do them through the power of the Holy Spirit or according to his divine nature or is it possible in some sense both thank you Stanley uh, as the mediator as the God man he exercised his ministry in complete dependence upon uh, the Holy Spirit it was a mark of his uh, mediatorial ship. So obviously he would perform miracles then in the power of the Holy Spirit. In his uh, divine nature, since uh, each member of the Godhead participates in all the work of the Godhead, there would have been uh, at least a way in which he also, in the power of his own deity, uh, would have been um, exercising those miracles. But there were definitely mediatorial miracles uh, done in, in the full power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Our next question comes from Aaron Richmond, and he uh, has a bit of an involved question here, but I'm just going to go for it. I think it's a really helpful question. Yeah, I do too. The other day, as I was reading through Philip Kayser's booklet, Sunday as a First Day Sabbath, I came across an argument I don't remember reading before. He says that each of the Gospels calls Resurrection Sunday a First Day Sabbath and cites... Matthew 28, 1, Mark 16, 2, Luke 24, 1, and John 20, verse 1. He thinks the Greek in these verses, usually translated as first of the week or first day of the week, would be better translated first day Sabbath. From what I know of Greek, this seems plausible. I did drop out of seminary twice, though, so I thought I'd run it by you guys. Anyone else heard this argument think there's anything to it? Unless I've missed it, this argument isn't a major plank in most of the books today that argue for observing the Sabbath on the Lord's Day. Anyone know why people don't want to put much weight on this? Is it too technical, or is it something else? And then he gives a sample of the argument, but I won't, I won't read that. We won't read that. It's a very interesting um, argument based on... <coughs> what Mr. Kayser has found with respect to uh, the Greek that's used in the passage. I've, I've studied this a bit. I discussed it with our uh, Greek uh, professor. Uh, I think the argument uh, fails, even though, as he points out, there are perhaps places where the Greek, which is mia sabaton, the first of the Sabbath, and you could substitute a left-out word, day, uh, dia, maybe could mean that, but not in these places, the places where it's used in the synoptics, and that's simply because of the context. So in, it, in these passages, let's just take, for example, Matthew 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. So that phrase, the first day of the week, is the first of the Sabbath. 
But here there's very good reason to translate this the first day of the week, which wasn't one of the idioms, it seems, um, in Hebrew culture to talk about the days. And that's because the traditional use of the Sabbath, is uh, of the seventh-day Sabbath, is the first part of the sentence. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, or the Sabbath day, you would see you would have a great deal of confusion. Uh, at this point in the church, the apostles had not changed the Sabbath day from the seventh to the first. Now, there's plenty in the Gospels. John's use of the eighth day, which takes us back to the biblical theology of the, of the, of the festivals, particularly the Feast of uh, Tabernacles. Um, there's, there's much there to show us that the Sabbath was changed, as does Hebrews uh, chapter 4. But I don't think this argument works, Aaron, simply because of the context. You would, it would be very confusing to say after the Sabbath, which was on the seventh day, as it began to dawn toward the Sabbath, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. So as interesting as it is, I do not see it to be a useful argument, which is probably why it's not made it into other books. Thank you, Aaron, for the question. And if you, if anybody has follow-ups on this, or if you're familiar with this gentleman's, uh, Mr. Kaiser's or Kaiser's work, feel free to send in follow-up questions. We always encourage that here uh, on Faith in Practice. Our next question comes from Sean Brand of Perth, Australia, and he uh, gives a little bit of background here. We have a 10-month-old daughter. She's actually probably about a year old now since this question. Two or three? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're not that old. We haven't well, been since that then, bad. we've helped, hope we've helped him find a church in Perth. Yeah, anyway. that's right. He says, our church has a nursery for infants and younger children, which we refuse to make use of. We believe that as covenant children, they should be with us in the sanctuary from as young as possible. Having immigrated here recently, we don't have family to leave her with when going to the Lord's table. Since birth, she has been coming with us to the table, just not partaking in the supper. Is this okay, theologically? How do we answer critics that say infants and little children in the sanctuary is a distraction? And that's why we have a nursery. Thank you, Sean. It's nice to hear from you. Let me answer the last part first, uh, which is, I think, much more important. Uh, and that is, we would agree with you that uh, our babies in arms should be in the worship service. Uh, we also would be very sensitive. Uh, Zach and I are involved in a church plant where sometimes, usually children don't bother me, but uh, because we got a lot of babies, I actually have had some distraction in trying to preach because of their, uh, of their noise. Um, but we want to train our children to be in there. Now, also, just in terms of physiology, it's been my experience as a pastor that from six months to 12 to 18 months, uh, the child in his development uh, is going to be loud and active. That's just how God has made them. That's the one time if a church doesn't have a, a training room that I am willing to, uh, to recommend that a child be put in a nursery. But those first six months and then sometime from between 12 and 18, uh, we should train them to be in church, but to be sensitive to those around us. But now there's another reason for having a nursery, and that is, do we want to reach the lost and our Armenian neighbors with the Reformed gospel? Well, I'm sure all of us would answer yes to that question. Well, let's don't get so hung up on this principle then that we fail to be all things to all men. We have uh, somebody visit our church, and they've got two little children, and the only church they've ever been in, the children were in a nursery. 
even up to 10 or 11 years old. Um, and we forced him to have that child in church for the first time in his life. So, humanly speaking, they're not going to be back next Sunday. And so, for me, a nursery is not for, I'd rather have the training room, the cry room. Nursery is not for our covenant children. Nursery is though for those we want to reach. And so, I think it's, I think it, a church ought to have a very good nursery with all of the uh, proper uh, safety precautions put in place as part of outreach. Uh, and then we will transition people through that as they are incorporated into the body. Uh, as to carrying your daughter up front when you uh, take the Lord's Supper, there's nothing wrong with that, unless the elders asked you not to do it, or if she was being loud uh, during the communion service. Um, no, you, since you're not giving her the Lord's Supper, I think it's, it's, it's perfectly okay, but it would depend again on what your local elders so I decide, hope you have found a church since we last communicated about looking for a church in Paris. Thank you, Sean, for the question, and thank you, Dr. Piper, for some of that wisdom. And you could be praying, uh, you could be praying for churches in particular that are dealing with this issue now, um, in light of COVID restrictions and pandemic things. It, it has become much more important to keep families together, and, and a lot more difficult to maintain a nursery in some parts of the country and some places around the world. Our next question comes from David Price of Arizona, and David says, Could you comment on the propriety of an apostolic greeting at the beginning of the worship service? The pastor with raised hands greets the congregation with the words of our Lord. My own experience in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church is that when this element is missing, the worship of God loses a certain sense of weightiness or solemnity. This does not seem to be a universal practice in Reformed churches, nor even in churches of the same denomination, or even in the same presbytery. <laughs> does it fall under the category of adiaphora? The Orthodox Presbyterian Church Book of Church Order seems to put it on equal footing with the benediction, and I have not experienced the omission of the benediction in a Reformed worship service. Thanks for considering my question. Well, thank you very much, David. You've touched on a matter close to my own heart. Um, I, in our worship course, I teach the use of the salutation. Uh, Zach and I are using it as part of our liturgy and the mission work that we're trying to do. For the sake of leaders, this salutation or apostolic greeting uh, is a apostolic greeting that most of the epistles of the New Testament have. It's basically a grace and mercy from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ be unto all of you. And there's different nuances on that, but that's the, the basic formula. It's, uh, it's very ancient in its use. And I would agree with you, it surely uh, brings a sense of weightiness to what we are all about. Uh, the order in which we use it, and what I teach is, we start with God's commandment, which is also the elder's exercise of the keys, uh, that summons us into God's presence. So that would be the call to worship, which should be that as well. It should not be uh, a doctrinal passage uh, but a clear biblical commandment to worship and praise God. That's followed, and it's the Dutch Reformed churches that continue to practice this most consistently with the statement of help. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. comes from the Psalms of Ascent. And then the salutation. Now, if you explain this to people, so God calls us, we enter his presence taking this vow, 
this commitment that our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. And then God in his court greets us as we come into his presence. If we can capture that, uh, it's going to, as you say, it brings a weightiness to and solemnity uh, to our service. Now, as to its requirement, Presbyterians have been loath to require uh, that level of things in worship services. Now, the PCA went too far by making nine-tenths of its directory of worship non-binding. Uh, but these are the kind of things that uh, would not be binding, uh, demanding uniformity. The uh, OPC, there was controversy over that book because are these remarks demanding uniformity and all had to do with different verbs that were being used and everything else? Or like a directory, are they suggestive? And I think that uh, I want to say that they are suggestive. And I was just, again, for, for another question, looking at Calvin's Institutes in Book 4, Chapter 10, where he deals with the binding nature of ceremonies and the church constitutions uh, and there's a lot of wisdom there. I would encourage anybody that wanted to pursue this to look at that. He uses, for example, kneeling for prayer, which is not adiaphora because there's the biblical pattern, but he's not going to make that, he's not going to mandate that pattern uh, for uh, the churches. And that's, I think, the way we look at things like this. So I think there must be a call to worship and a benediction. Uh, those are the bookends of our being corporately in the presence of God. The other liturgical things are very good. They are biblical. Um, but uh, we would not be sinning if we did not use them. At least that is in my opinion. Thanks. That's really helpful to me as we've been using the salutation at the church plant. But in the previous church we were attending, there wasn't a salutation. and Nor a prayer of adoration. Yeah. And so it's just interesting to, to see how different Faithful churches do these things differently and the rationale behind them. Our next question is, again, submitted anonymously. How should the church handle the question of men in the office of elder or deacon who have been previously ordained in good conscience but who are no longer qualified by the standards of 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 15? Should they be removed from office immediately or should they remain in office and address the issue? Well, Anonymous, this is a very important pastoral uh, question. One of the things that uh, I encourage the men here is, is that when you're called to a church, uh, God in his providence has given you the session to act in it that he wants you to have. And it's not your prerogative to go in there and immediately try to, to clean house. Um, and so I think that we do uh, start with what God has given us and not wreck our own consciences because we're not dealing with these men. And then the next step is what you have intimated, and that is uh, they remain in office, but we address the issue. But we address the issue, again, pastorally. So we start trying to disciple men. That's a missing element in our Reformed churches is mentoring. Uh, and so we come alongside these men and uh, try to mentor them one-on-one. -on -one. We introduce uh, books discussions in the session meeting uh, and do these things. If, it comes to, if it's a glaring sin, though, so now we're talking about a lot of, you know, unqualified elders, but if the sin is glaring, if the man is living uh, in uh, 
adultery or committing fornication or he's a known abuser of alcohol. Uh, he's pugnacious and with a, a fighty temperament. You cannot wait on those things. You still want to deal with it pastorally, but you go to him and, and, and with admonition. Uh, uh, go back with the witness if he doesn't repent at that and then bring it to, to the session. So you're distinguishing between two different sets of disqualifying characteristics. So one would be something like ignorance, uh, lack of knowledge of the Bible or familiarity with Scripture or, or a lack of aptness to teach, but being yet an elder. Whereas, well, even having a family that's not where you'd want that family to be. But if, if it's a public, a sin of a public nature that's gross, then you can't wait. I would say public or moral nature, even if it's, if it's hidden from the view of, of everybody well, else, yes. if you find out about it. Right. And then you, that's you, the you have to That's the procedure I went it. through then. Yeah, go to yeah. A, yeah. But we're making that distinction right. at the end of the day, which yeah. I think is very helpful. Because you can be a, a good man, member in good standing, yet not fit for office of elder or deacon. Or I right. should say not qualified right. for it. Well, let's say the issue we dealt with in this, uh, a couple of Lord's days ago, or this past Lord's Day, the uh, man's wife uh, is disastrous. Maybe she didn't even come to that church. Uh, and he never should have been an elder or a deacon. But you don't immediately go in there and say, well, sorry, your wife's not converted or she's not a member of this church and we're going to remove you from office. No, you, uh, you you patiently try to work through these things. I think it's a big difference between the man who's complacent and content with that situation and the man uh, for whom this is a, a real burden on his heart. Right. And, and he's bringing it up as a prayer request and things like that. Yes. Our next question comes from Adam McKinney of Rock Hill, South Carolina, not too far away. He says, do dictates in Scripture prohibit a woman from teaching an adult Sunday school class? For context, let's assume that class is mixed gender on the Lord's Day, where a woman exegetes Scripture, exercising some measure of spiritual authority, but is also clearly distinguished from the worship service. I also wonder if such a prohibition exists. Does it extend to middle or high school age youth, some of whom may border on the maturity of adulthood? Moreover, even if you determine there is not a clear or explicit prohibition in texts such as 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15, or others, perhaps you understand them to deal only with the worship service. Would there be any concerns that arise by way of Christian prudence or are applied from Scripture that should give us pause to have women teaching in this way? So we have two questions here. One is kind of just the technical question, may it be? And then the second is more of a, a bit more, I don't know, well, I think, Prudential. Yeah. So I think we answered them as one. Uh, right off, Adam, no, they should not be teaching mixed classes or men's classes uh, in the church life, whether it's on Sunday school or a Bible study during the week. If it's a women's uh, Sunday school class, uh, that's obviously different. She's commanded to teach women. And the principle, uh, as you rightly particularly refer to 1 Timothy 2. 1 Corinthians 14 seems to be dealing more with the worship service, but 1 Timothy 2, the principles are much broader. I don't allow a woman to teach men or have authority over them. Now, obviously, it's in the context of corporate worship, but it's a very emphatic uh, commandment. Uh, moreover, the grounds that are given would certainly not just apply to uh, corporate worship. Uh, it has to do with uh, male headship and with uh, uh, 
the woman's uh, uh, nature with respect to positive nature and also because of the fall. And so I think it is, it's terribly wrong uh, to put women into those situations. It's not, it's not good for them. I go a step further. If she does teach a women's Bible study or uh, either in Sunday school or elsewhere, that she should be using approved materials. Even if she writes her own materials, they should be reviewed by the session. And any book that she uses should be reviewed. Well, all books used in Sunday school should be reviewed by the session as well as Bible studies. I think what often happens is that women have their Bible studies and no elder has reviewed the book uh, that they're using for the textbook are the notes of the lady who is doing the teaching. As to the age when this comes into effect, uh, to some degree that's cultural. In older cultures, uh, a 14-year-old would have been much closer to a man than to an adolescent. That's not true today. Uh, so middle school, uh, early high school, I think it's I think it's good to have uh, male godly models at that age, and so I think it's preferable. I wouldn't say that she's prohibited. You get to college age, though, I would say that at that point in our culture, that's where we recognize manhood. You can buy a beer at 18, and you can vote at 21. It's yeah. all 21 now? No, you can vote at 18. They just changed that. That's you, right. But you, you have to be 21 to get a beer. Or any kind of tobacco now anywhere in the country. So in our culture, that's, you know, we'll, we'll just for the sake of discussion, we'll say 18 is kind of the transition period. Uh, and so clearly, I think at a college age that it'd be better for women not to be teaching the young men uh, in, in the class. So informally, though, we also want to look at the uh, Priscilla and Aquila model. So I'll say formal teaching, never. Informally, as we're sitting around the home, husbands and wives participate together. Even as I learned from my wife, when we have people in the home who are having very good biblical theological discussions, she's going to contribute as well, and we're all going to profit from what our wives say as well as what we think. So informally, in the home, it's not authoritative, I think that it's uh, it's not impro not improper. All right, fair enough. I may differ with Dr. Piper on this a little bit. I I would say that, uh, and this was the I think the stance of my uh, church back home, at least when I was there, is uh, in in high school you have all male teachers over mixed classes. Well, I said that's preferable. I know, but I I think that they wouldn't they wouldn't allow uh, female teachers in that context. And that was at the direction of the session and the fathers of the church. That's good. Yeah. Let's take Scott's first. We've got Scott Creel of Hooksit, New Hampshire. Did I say that right? I think so. A Greenville grad? Yep. And he asks, can the church or local session require mask wearing as a condition to worship? How does this relate to the regulative principle of Christian liberty? Is a church mask mandate an abuse of church power? You know, Scott, I hope you're not going through this personally, but I get probably every week a phone call from someplace, and the churches are splitting over this uh, business because both sides are digging down their heels and I think not exercising some biblical wisdom. 
so the first thing I guess we have to keep in mind is uh, not the state saying we shouldn't meet, you know, uh, but if the state has a, a regulation that anytime you're in a public place you wear a mask, I don't see how that differs from saying we have to have a fire extinguisher in the kitchen or lighted exit lights in the uh, worship hall. As long as that rule is being applied across the board. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so if the session then, because of the state's uh, requirement, um, has that mandated, then I don't think that is problematic. Uh, the, but what is problem, and nor does this violate the regative principle of worship. This is not an element of worship in any way whatsoever. Um, so it becomes a circumstance of worship. And so this does become then a matter of Christian liberty. Now, what I wish would happen is, is that the, we'll, we'll take Paul's pattern of the weak brother and the strong brother. The strong brother is not a mask wearer, thinks it's foolish. The weak brother uh, feels vulnerable and, and thinks the mask will do him good and would want others around him to wear a mask. Seems to me the session shouldn't have to mandate it that the strong brothers would say, you know, we sure want you at worship. And so uh, we will, uh, as we come in and leave the church, uh, as we mill around afterwards, we will we'll all agree to wear a mask. And that's the guidance the session has given us. Uh, in terms of the session requiring that, again, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I went back and quickly reviewed uh, Calvin in uh, book, book 4, chapter 10. I think that it's not an abuse of church power. Think of the Jerusalem Council. They had some moral requirements in that letter that they sent out in Acts 15, and they had some ceremonial requirements. So meat offered, and I think Calvin deals with this, well, meat offered uh, our blood, not drinking blood, was a concession to their Jewish friends, fellow church members. It's not a binding uh, mandate on the church after that particular period of time. Same with meat offered to idols. Paul himself then will address that issue and say, don't go to, to the temple restaurant and eat it, but if it's sold in the marketplace, you don't need to be scrupulous about it. And so even in the more mature era of, of the church. So I think the church uh, may uh, mandate that what our confession says in circumstances that they must show wisdom in what they're doing um, it must be something that's common to the culture well obviously as we all know mask wearing is uh, so but I think the main thing I would just what I say to people pastors just look for this middle ground either have two different services which uh, at our at church where we worship in the mornings, um, with our church plant, we're at it in the evenings, but um, they have a COVID service at four o'clock in the afternoon, and uh, they respect all the protocols, and the people that want that go to that service. It's a full worship service. I just recommended to one of our young graduates, his church has two morning services. I said, look, 
Don't the church split on this? Let one service be a non-mass service and let the second service then be a, a mask, a COVID service. Uh, the church up at uh, one of our graduates has been installed at Westminster Church in Kingsport. The elders dealt with it there, and they've got a balcony. And they've kind of stood the balcony as the COVID section in uh, the service. So there's ways that we can deal with this. But what Satan is doing in this, and I think it's even more important than and what's underlying your question uh, as, as well, Scott, is that uh, Satan is splitting churches over this. People are saying, I'm not going to go to church if they require a mask. I'm not going to go to church if they don't require a mask. Well, they're both cutting off their noses despite their face. And they're insisting on their own rights, which is not a biblical principle or concept at all. And so we want people to learn humility through this. There's many important lessons to learn through uh, this time uh, in which we're living. I think one of them is, is, is humility. And let's quit throwing down gauntlets over mask. Uh, I don't like the mask. I don't wear them unless I'm in some place that requires it or someone that wants it. In fact, this morning I went to my audiologist and I said, do you want me to wear this mask or not? She said, I prefer you to wear it because I see a lot of people every day. And that was fine. Um, so, but if she said, no, I don't care, well, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have worn it. <laughs> so it's difficult. We need to pray for wisdom. But above all, let's quit throwing down gauntlets and making demands on sessions and meet each other halfway uh, on this thing. Uh, frankly, we're way too over uh, fearful about this stuff. Uh, it's much more political and medical, in my opinion. And um, but as long as we're living with it, then we need to do it humbly. Yeah, I'm a big fan of just multiplying worship services on the Lord's Day. Most of the listeners to our podcast are going to churches that don't already have uh, a Lord's Day. Just Filled with worship services, and I know there are some quote-unquote mega churches where that is the case. But for the listeners of this podcast, I think it, you know adding an early afternoon service or a, a second morning service, either early or late, really is not going to be a terrible inconvenience, and, and is certainly within the realm of feasibility in order to accommodate those who have significant health concerns or have a different appraisal of the situation than we do. I I do agree with Dr. Piper though. It is uh, baffling to me to hear from all parts of the country people now making their uh, decision of where to worship based on whether or not they have to wear a mask one way or the other. And Dr. Piper, thank you for your time. Folks, thank you for sending in these questions. We have a couple more on the list that we'll get to next time. Hopefully we'll be able to return in March, which brings me to my concluding thought, and that is join us for the 2021 Spring Theology Conference at Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church in Simpsonville, South Carolina, hosted by Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. I guess it's our conference. They're hosting it because it's their facility. But uh, we'd love to see you there. We're we already like have the churches that have our opening for services are getting full of visitors. So here's a real conference people uh, can go to and not worry good. about it. Yeah, if you're able to join us, please do. We're working on uh, live streaming the full conference this year um, because of the situation in which we find ourselves. So I'll make sure to publicize information for that. And then Thursday afternoon of the conference on March 11th, so the conference runs from the 9th to the 11th, on Thursday afternoon and evening, we're having a special inauguration ceremony, a bit delayed, 
but an inauguration ceremony for Dr. Master, our new president, as well as a banquet in the evening, something of a reception. We'll have uh, dignitaries from a number of schools and denominations with us, and so we'd love for you to join us for what promises to be a festive celebration. Um, I see Dr. Pipe is looking at my Francis Schaeffer books. I got the title for that book on creation care. Uh, Dr. Schaefer wrote it in the 70s, Pollution and the Death of Man. Pollution and the Death of Man. Yeah, it is a good title. Uh, perennially relevant and uh, still recognized as, as a worthwhile contribution to the literature. But for the conference, visit our website, gpds.edu slash conference. You guessed it. Uh, for more information and uh, for information about the inauguration, visit gpds.edu slash banquet. Or you could just contact us here at your friendly neighborhood confessional Presbyterian seminary, info at gpts.edu. Dr. Piper, do you have any closing thoughts? No, you covered it all. All right. Covered it all. Like a big wet blanket. All right. (laughs) Have a great weekend, folks. Godspeed. Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu donate. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.